Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Peter, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Sure. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Peter Hymans, uh, born in California, 1947. So I'm a, I'm a boomer. And um, my education experiences, uh, I studied at Whittier College in Southern California, did photojournalism there, uh, um, minored in Spanish and majored in political science. Um, I was a world traveling uh, export manager for nearly 30 years, and I've been to many countries, seen many people, heard many, many opinions. I also studied for a semester in Copenhagen, Denmark, where I had a professor who uh, really, he told us that he was going to bombard us with socialist propaganda as sort of an antithesis of what we would be hearing in the United States. And he says, it's not my goal to make a communist out of you, just make you aware of other points of view. So. Um, I have a life experience of uh, travel, international study, um, and uh, photography has been my forte. Uh, as a profession right now, um, I'm still working, and I sell cold rooms and wine racking. But um, I do as little of that as necessary and concentrate on photography. Um, I've been the photographer for the JFK Assassination Conference, LLC, for several years and met many of the top JFK and RFK assassination uh, researchers, uh, publishers, uh, authors, movie producers, et cetera. And um, I'm not really an expert on much of anything, but I have a very good, solid general background and I know a lot of people. So um, when I need something, it's available to me and I'm, I'm quite good at putting people together. Um, so you have an interest in the JFK assassination as well too, not just the RFK one. Yeah. Um, Basically, uh, that's where I started out. I mean, uh, um, the story is that, you know, I was in, let's see, I was 16, sophomore in, in high school, and the announcement came over the, the loudspeaker that um, there had been shots fired in Dallas and uh, President Kennedy had been hit. And, uh, of course, everybody in the room was stunned, and we went to lunch, and then after lunch, we found out that John Kennedy was dead. And, um, everybody in the country was just stunned because what is difficult for people younger to understand is the charisma that John F. Kennedy and Jackie and the kids had. Um, he was like a surrogate father. Jackie was like the mother that everyone wanted to have. And, and you know, John and Carolyn were like brothers and sisters to us. So when John Kennedy was shot, it was a deep uh, emotional blow to pretty much everybody. Even conservatives um, were charmed by Bobby, um, uh, Johnny, pardon me, John. Um, so then, uh, you know, I proceeded in high school, graduated, went to college. And in 1968, I was working on Robert Kennedy's campaign team at, at college. And I was also the yearbook photographer, newspaper photographer. And um, the editors of the newspaper said, come on, Pete, Bobby's talking in El Monte. Let's go. So I grabbed my camera and we went about six miles away from Whittier. And I was standing in the street and the convertible with Bobby Kennedy came by um, as close to me as my monitor is. And uh, he was looking the other way. So um, I have this gift of saying the right thing at the right time. So I said, hey, Senator, I'm over here. So he turned around and looked at me and I said, I'm on your campaign team at Whittier College. And he looked me in the eye with the kind of look that just went straight through into my heart. And I felt who he was. It, it was a, an amazing bond of about a quarter of a second. He looked me in the eye and he said, thank you. I need all the help I can get. We shook hands and I took four or five pictures of him. And then the car was on down the road. And six days later, he was dead. And then when they announced that Sirhan was the lone assassin, uh, I had this immediate like electric jolt saying, hey, wait a minute. Another lone assassin? No, I was born at night but not last night, something's wrong here. And so, um, you know, the, the RFK case was sort of open and shut um, from the way it transpired. Sirhan was there, they captured him with a gun, da 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 uh, They seduced, induced, uh, threatened him into making a, a confession, and it was on down the road. So um, I started studying the John Kennedy assassination, and it became a passion um, when I was very young. Uh, my mom set me down at the table one day and she looked at me. She said, Peter, never lie. He said, your eyes will give you away. Some people get away with it, but you never will. So uh, I've lived a very truthful life. I've been in sales and I found a way to sell without being um, dishonest. So when 
I started digging into the JFK assassination. It was very clear the level of untruth it was. And, you know, Operation Paperclip, Operation Mongoose, uh, Northwoods came up. And so I saw the kind of sinister stuff that went on. I saw the motivations that would have killed John Kennedy. And then um, after Bobby's death, um, somewhere along the line, uh, Thomas Noguchi's autopsy results came out. And it was very clear that Sirhan could not have done it. So also by then, there were uh, several books available. And I dug into those and just more and more and more saw that there was a railroading going on. And um, the question is, why? And again, when I was little, my mom said to me, Peter, um, science can tell us how, but only God can tell us why. So um, looking for the why was more difficult than the how. And so digging through evidence and so on, um, I've reached the point now where I see a trajectory that goes back from probably the U-2 incident and before Operation Paperclip, basically, um, all the way to where we are today. Little steps, little step at a time. And now we're in the situation we're in today. So um, I'm uh, I'm curious, when the JFK assassination happened, did you have the skepticism that I think a lot of people started asking kind of questions about the official story after Oswald was killed by just a strip club owner? Um but you weren't fully dived into like obviously all the government operations and all the stuff that we know now. I kind of started off with all the government operations like Paperclip I knew about before the JFK assassination and I knew about Mockingbird and all that. So it wasn't so far out of the realm, but it wasn't until the JFK assassination where I started reading the whole church committee reports and all this other stuff that was going on. And I really asked the question, like, what do they call a national security? Like they're doing that now with yeah, the rest yeah. of the documents that they're keeping back there. So I'm curious if at the time, I mean, you probably didn't have the accessibility for looking at some of those government operations, but did you have, did you believe the official story on that one? Or did the Bobby Kennedy assassination kind of toss you over the edge of like both brothers were killed? You know, uh, really good question. Um, I would say that most of us that are rather conscious, in other words, people that aren't driven by having music going in the background, having busyness going on, people that think, um, as I was, um, were suspicious. There's something, there was just something not right about it. Um, and of, of course, I think um, when Jack Ruby killed Oswald in the basement of the police station live on television, I actually wasn't in the room, but my father was screaming, Oswald has been shot. And then right then it was sort of like, eh, you know, the red flag went up, but it was more of a feeling than cognizant, you know. So the impression was something's not right here, you know. And um, at age 16, I was really not able to sort out through life experience and education what it was. But I smelled a rat from the very beginning. And, and then... Um, of course, Lyndon Johnson was the most insincere looking person on the planet, I would say. Um, and when he made his speech uh, when they were offloading the coffin from Air Force One, um, it just sounded like bummity bum to me. So um, and th there, there wasn't stuff available. I mean, um, you know, we subscribed to the San Francisco Chronicle and the Palo Alto Times, but they were just feeding out UPI, United Press International Information and so on. But the the contradictions and so on, just something wasn't something wasn't right. And I knew there was something to solve. Did I answer your question or is there still something more that I could add? No, that, to that? That, was, that was a good answer. <laughs> uh, when it comes to the RFK assassination, why do you think he was killed? Oh, think, I've, I've heard many different opinions from people saying that it was because he was going to open up stuff about his brother. And he made statements before that. I mean, going after the mob as well, too, depending on if you think it was like a mob hit style thing. Um, I don't know if I believe Sirhan did it. I understand he was charged for it. But from what I've seen and the guy that I guess who was shot in the head who recently just passed away. Um, like I said, I'm, yeah, Paul I'm driving now into the RFK one because I realized it wasn't getting a lot of attention compared to the JFK assassination, which I think is a shame because um, both of them are just horrible incidences. Uh, but Paul Paul Schrade defended uh, Sirhan. He thought there was more than one shooter. So to me, it has a lot more weight to it if you look um, from the guy who was shot in the head um, defending one of the shooters of the person being accused for killing Robert Kennedy. Yes. And so your question is, uh, what are my thoughts about the RFK assassination? Well, why do you think RFK was, do you think it was because he was going to look into the JFK stuff or do you think he was going after the mob? Do you think it's because he pissed off Lyndon Johnson or Hoover? I mean, you could take a range of different options there. 
So I learned a, a cunning trick is to just answer yes or no to or questions. Um, the answer would be yes to all of the above. Um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., pardon me, Robert F. Kennedy, I think, was more astute, uh, and certainly more strategic, uh, and could be more brutal, having worked um, with um, McCarthy, Joseph McCarthy, um, prosecuting uh, criminals and stuff like that. So, and he was also kind of the runt of the of the boys in the family. So he always had to struggle to to get get his place. Of course, Teddy was even younger yet, but. Um, under Joseph Kennedy Jr. and under under John Kennedy, Bobby had to struggle for attention and so on. So he was kind of a mama's boy. And after John had been John was killed, it just knocked him to his knees. Um, and he went through a metamorphosis that turned him much more into a, a humanist. But when he was with John, he was he, he was very strategic. And I would say that probably half to maybe even two thirds of all the strategic decisions that were made during the Kennedy administration were prompted by or suggested by Bobby. So he was the tough guy. Um, John was the, John Kennedy, the president, was the intellectual, the ladies' man, the cultured person, the conversationalist, um, and he had feelings for peace because he was a war veteran. But when it came to actually machinating it, um, Bobby was the one. So. Um, I think uh, one of the first phone calls that Bobby made um, after John was killed was to the director of the CIA and said, was this your people? So he already suspected it. So um, going through the metamorphosis that Bobby did when John had been killed, the deep tragedy, um, uh, he got to the point where he became much more of a human. He became much more interested in the human condition and the poor and so on. And um, he was going to go after pretty much everybody that uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr. is, is going after today. Um, and so, um, but in 1968, we didn't have all of the crazy stuff that's going on right now. Basically, it was the military industrial complex that Eisenhower had warned us about. So Bobby was going after that. And um, I believe that um, that was the primary reason. Um, there are people who uh, believe that there were CIA agents in the Ambassador Hotel in the lobby. And, um, you know, um, Shane, uh, Caesar, Eugene Shane, Shane Caesar, I, I may have the name a little bit wrong there, but the security guard that is uh, purported to have shot um, Bobby um, was, to my understanding, a CIA operative. So, um, now, that's not to say the entire CIA is an evil organization. I mean, there are people there are people working for the CIA that, you know, probably our next door neighbors uh, may be working for the CIA. But things are compartmentalized. People don't always know what they're up to. I think one of the real stunning things about the RFK assassination is the fact that Vincent Bugliosi, who wrote basically a doorstop book about the JFK assassination. It was very, very much pro-Warren Commission, was actually a, a great ally to the people who were pushing for a conspiracy uh, theory around Bobby's assassination. And that's diametrically opposing. And, and it, it just makes one wonder um, who wrote, who paid for, and who compiled the, the book uh, Reclaiming History. I believe that was the name of Bugliosi's book. So, yeah, Bobby, Bobby was killed by uh, the, the military industrial complex. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much it. And why the L.A. Police Department covered it up so vigorously. Um, L.A. Police Department was known for a long time to be corrupt. Um, it goes back to the Wineland murders, um, which is a whole nother story. But the L.A. Police Department was a corrupt organization and somebody was pulling their strings. Can I ask what when you say the LAPD covered it up, could you explain a little bit about what they covered up? I like I said, I'm learning the RFK stuff now because after Paul Schrade died, I realized that I might not have the chance if I wait longer to interview people who are actually there or talk to a lot of people around that. I'm coming at the game late. I did it with the JFK assassination. I'm a 60 years in. I finally decided to look into it and start talking about it and interview people on it. So I'm very interested in the RFK one. But when you said the LAPD covers things up, what do you mean? Well, okay, first let me just say that um I'm I'll use the word omnivorist. Um, I have a very broad um, and not so deep understanding of a lot of things. I know a lot of names and they come and go in the memory. So um, for me to give you a, a lot of specifics 
uh, I'm not the best person for all of that. And I think my theories uh, and so on are pretty good. So the, the Los Angeles Police Department um, had a reputation of being manipulative. And I'm um, sure there was crimes going on. Um, there was a Clint Eastwood movie called The Changeling, I think, which would be very valuable to watch. It's about a little boy who was kidnapped and his mother was a telephone operator and she chased and chased and chased uh, and tried to find out what happened. And the L.A. Police Department tried to convince her that this boy that they found in Illinois was her son. Um, and it wasn't. And they pushed and pushed, finally threw her into an estate asylum and somebody finally rescued her. So um, the uh, Clint Eastwood movie, The Changeling, is a very good reference as to how the police, the L.A. Police Department worked. Um, the evidence was totally mishandled. They had a man working on ballistics um, that manipulated things and handled things in an incompetent way. The way the bullets were tested, there were there was bullet damage to the door frame in the Ambassador Hotel pantry. Um, and people who knew ballistics and stuff said, yeah, those are bullets. And the door frame disappeared someplace. Other evidence was lost, confused, mutilated, chain of possession was very clumsy. And um, had they not gotten a confession out of Sirhan and had he, he had a legitimate um, attorney representing him, um, he certainly would have gotten off or been shown to be possibly a co-conspirator. But um, they never really looked into uh, MK Ultra. Um, there's a lot of people that believe that Sirhan um, had been subjected to MK Ultra hypnot hypnotism, etc. And there's a lot of evidence about his supposed fall at the racetrack and the time he went to the hospital and so on. There's some blurs about where Sirhan was and so on. And the LA Police Department didn't dig into it. They just treated it, you know, he, they had a confession. So they went with first degree murder. murder this, uh, you know, he was sentenced to death and the death sentence was commuted. Just like the JFK assassination, there actually really wasn't a real investigation. It was kind of more of a half-assed like cover statement that kind of came out. Yeah, it's like, where's the evidence Oswald did it? You know, and, yeah. I mean, were you aware of the military-industrial complex before all that? I mean, I always bring up, because I, when I talked to um, David Talbot about, you know, he wrote extensively on the JFK and relationship between with Bobby Kennedy as well, too. But I, I asked, I was like, that's the most dangerous thing if you believe a military-industrial complex is the relationship between JFK and his brother RFK. Um, mostly, they're going to share things that about policy. They could talk about whatever without any of the generals or anybody that would else be in that administration that's running off that military industrial complex idea. And that's dangerous. I mean, I think there's a famous photo where they're sitting like side by side across from each other. Um, it's like in the dark, or I think it's on a cover of David Tal Talbot's one of his books, but I go, they can talk about anything. They can talk about issues in their administration, anything of that sort. So that relationship alone is a problem for the military industrial complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and your question again is try and think of this more of a conversation, not so much of an interview. Just okay. It sounded like a question in the beginning and then you elaborated on the, it. It's a relationship okay. between uh JFK and um RFK pissing off the military industrial complex. I mean, that brother connection, we've never had that, I, I don't think, since that. Yeah. Um, of course, uh, um, I sent you by email the the email that Bobby Jr. sent me. Um, where he referenced Eisenhower's uh, uh, leaving office farewell speech, where he warned us about the military industrial complex. Um, it was, again, it goes back to the census. Uh, when the Cuban Missile Crisis was happening, there was just something fishy. Um, uh, the newspapers were putting out a lot of like war, war, danger, danger. And what was coming out of John Kennedy's mouth and when Bobby spoke was um, it sounded like negotiation. It was it was very shrewd. But the the contrast between the feelings of peacefulness and, and potential war was very apparent. And then um, later on, of course, we found out that we almost did have a nuclear war if it wasn't for the uh, group commander of three submarines that were carrying nuclear torpedoes. Um, the man's name was Arkhipov, and he was the third person out of the three that had to vote yes that kept U.S. from launching a nuclear torpedo when U.S. destroyers – pardon me, kept Russia from launching a nuclear torpedo when U.S. destroyers were dropping uh, practice death charges on the Russian submarines. They didn't know if they were practice or what, and Arkhipov present, prevented that torpedo from being launched. So again, there was this, this feeling – 
And then, of course, when I started digging into the JFK assassination and learned about how the Joint Chiefs of Staff were planning to do a preemptive nuclear strike on Russia, and they expected to lose 30 million to 100 million people. And they said, well, it'll be worth it because they're going to Russia's going to lose more and then they will never be able to have a, a missile fleet that would kill us. So at that time, we had bomb shelters. I mean, I lived through the era where we did duck and cover drills yeah, in school under our desks and so on. And um, it, it was kind of it was more stupid than scary. I mean, because I I knew if a if nuclear bomb went off at Moffett Field and I was in Mountain View, 18, you know, eight miles away or less, um, I would have been toast. So there was just something crazy about that. And then the, I think the main thing was how hell bent the Joint Chiefs of Staff were on creating a war. And then when JFK's body was kidnapped from Dallas and taken into military custody and there was a military autopsy, it's like, wait a minute, the autopsy should have been done by civilians in Dallas, could have been done by civilians in Washington, but no, it was the military. So very clear to me that the CIA may have been involved in that. When I say that, I really mean those. I think the two assassinations are connected, Bobby's and John's. So when the military took over the autopsy, uh, and then when they started burying the evidence saying it's for national security, well, what national security is there about alone not pulling a trigger in both cases so um especially the amount of documentation they have over such a closed case yeah and and it's it's interesting um i have to admit a little bit of um exceptionalist feeling um ego uh about myself i, I can be kind of condescending at times but i think it might be justified uh, most people today especially they're glued to their smartphones and and if it's if it doesn't take 15 seconds to tell you something, people get bored. I mean, even I don't like proofreading my own writing. It's like, well, I did that. It should be good enough. So um, people aren't digging deep enough and they aren't seeing the, the tentacles that come from post-World War II. Um, and so when I look at what's happening today and I look at what Robert Kennedy Jr. is up to, it's very clear to me that he is the, the standard bearer for John Kennedy and for his father, and he's got his own. He's got his own environmental and pharmaceutical and chemical um, banner that neither Bobby nor John carried. Yeah, I know we swing in the same park as um, the COVID topic, um, but I, just we're going to avoid talking about that this discussion only because it'll get us. It won't be able to go on YouTube, and I figured you get more views on YouTube as well to get get some more eyes on you. But I wanted to talk about when you were supporting RFK during his campaign. What are some of the policies that you liked about? I'm not too familiar with what policies that he was enacting, and I'm um, I'm very curious because um, I have a media question too for you, which is um the the. I think it's Time Magazine. They cropped out his clip-on tie that was on the floor. Why would they do that? Was that for an embarrassment thing or for to keep his reputation intact? I just don't – like. there's a big thing of media not messing with photographs, but they cut that little tie out. And they, they've done that before with the Vietnam reporting in the um, Napalm Girl. They cropped off the soldier that was standing off the right. So that's just – it's a – big perspective change if you really look at it. I mean it doesn't matter much with the clip-on tie, but it's just a weird thing to crop out on a magazine. Well, the, the clip-on tie was a key piece of evidence. Um, they didn't want the public to know that Bobby had ripped off Shane Eugene Caesar's clip-on tie after he'd been shot. Because um, when I heard Bobby Jr. talking the other day, um, I didn't realize this, but uh, Bobby Sr. had actually fallen on St. Thane Eugene Caesar, who is uh, the probable person who fired some of the shots. So, um, and and as far as the media is concerned, um, the LA Times has long been a, a lapdog of the city hall, and the city hall has long time been, you know, influenced by whoever's got the money, whoever owns the newspaper, et cetera. Um, and there's there's so much about that 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 comes into into play. I mean. Um, when John Barber launched his film, The American Media uh, and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy, if you haven't seen it, it's really good. Um, uh, I was in Beverly Hills. He asked me to do the still photography of the introduction. And we were sitting having coffee the next day when the L.A. Times arrived. And the entire article about the film had nothing to do with the evidence presented in the film. It was 
what a kook barber is and how he's going down conspiratorial avenues and so on. There was absolutely no data there. And if, if you look at uh, analysis of Bobby Jr.'s speeches today, that which does hit the media is just trash. New York Magazine, uh, Rebecca, I can't remember her last name, just did a piece called the um, RFK Jr. and the Inside Story or something like that, the Inside Track or something. It was a complete smear. So, um, but sticking with the RFK stuff, I asked you about um, his campaign policies. I mean, what was interesting to you? Were you were you just interested in voting for him because of the JFK stuff? I think that's why my grandma was supporting RFK was not only some of the things that he said, but also because she cared so much about JFK. She wanted to support RFK. I think that's why a lot of researchers who researched JFK wanted up going into the RFK one. But I'm curious if you, you were looking at his policies at all and actually found some things that you were in support of. Well, heck yeah, I was listening. I was a male, um, 21 years of age, in college, draft, draftable. The Vietnam War was just, you know, I, probably about its midpoint. And I, I had friends from high school that had been killed over in Vietnam uh, by gunfire. So um, I didn't want my ass to be over there. Um, and so, uh, of course, you know, we paid attention. And there was Eugene McCarthy and Hubert Humphrey and uh, George McGovern. And a lot of people were sort of talking piece. But what I heard from Bobby was the the fruit of the tree of mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, that he did when John was killed. He became a humanist, and he was talking in tone that made it sound very much like, I care about you. I, I, I took it very personally. When he talked, I listened. I felt like he was talking directly to me. And that's one of the magic things about the Kennedy politicians. Um, it's not the Kennedy name. It is their inter, interpersonal relationship with people. If you have occasion to meet Bobby Jr., it'll take you 20 seconds to watch when he's with people uh, how he is. Um, so this is Bobby Jr. is relevant here because he is the fruit of Bobby's tree. But um, when Robert Kennedy Jr. and I'm sure Sr. were talking to the press, they were concerned about how am I coming across? Is my hair good? You know, am I pronouncing things properly and so on? And very few smiles because they're very articulate and they pay attention to, to what they're saying and how it's coming across. But when the lights go off and they're talking to humans, they are present and they care about people. They remember who they are and so on. And that is what I got about Bobby Sr., you know, especially after meeting him. Unfortunately, he only lived six days after I met him, but it was very clear that my suspicions about his caring for humanity. And if you go back to the Peace Corps and the Alliance for Progress and the things that John Kennedy with Bobby Kennedy put into place, those were all programs to help the little guy out and help try to make a peaceful transition from a land barren, uh, feudal way of governing people to one where the little guy had some ownership and some feel of uh, power in the world. So it was it was about Bobby's humanity, Bobby Sr.'s humanity that attracted me to him. And there was a lot of people that were for Eugene McCarthy and, and you know, there was some edginess going on there. But in the end, um, I think it, be, it was very clear that Bobby and John Kennedy were non-mainstream. They, they were trajectory, they were purpose-oriented and not result-oriented. And uh, Bobby Jr. actually says that. He says, I don't wake up with expectations in the morning. I just do one task on my purpose at a time. And um, I'm only responsible for a very small piece of real estate in my own shoes. And I, I believe that uh, Bobby Jr. is very much like his father in that respect. Um, this question is not really about JFK or RFK, but during that time, I mean, it's a lot going on. But did you... I mean, was any of this affected by like with the counterculture movement and other things that were going on as well, too? I mean, the whole 60s and 70s is a giant area of interest to me. And you have experience. I mean, if you live through it, you have experience about it that I'm very interested in learning more about. I mean, did you look into the counterculture movements or anything that was going on with the underground press? I know it's an odd off question from what. No, you know, no, it's, a, yeah. it's, it's, it's actually the perfect question because you're going deep. You're looking at the peripheral and, and the the foundational psychology of what was going on at the time. and and. Um, that's one of the things that we Americans are very prone to do. And that is, uh, my mom told me one time, look, Peter, when you have kids, don't say, are you going to eat your vegetables? Say, are you going to eat your, your carrots or your lima beans? 
So it takes the choice of not out. Um, and so when we get something thrown in front of us by the press, no, no matter how absurd, we tend to look at it as a dichotomy. It's either right or it's wrong. Middle ground is completely absent, not completely, but mostly absent from the American culture when 98% of all of life takes place in the midpoints between the polarity. Everybody wants you to pick a side. They don't like that middle of the road stuff. Yeah, yeah. You're a wimp if you don't have a decision about something. Or, or Anyway, yeah. So, yeah, again, I was military age. And at the time, I was really fascinated in becoming an airline pilot. Whittier College was actually the college that Richard Nixon went to, so I was very aware of Nixon. But the the landing path for LA International Airport flew right over Whittier, and so my interest in aviation was was uh, well fed there. So I was in a, a Navy officer candidate program for going to flight school. So at one one hand I was a peace guy, on the other hand I was in LA, and um, you know people were. Uh, you know, marijuana was very popular at that time. And um, so there was a little of that counterculture, um, just relating with other people. There was my, you know, I'd already sw sworn an oath to the Uniform Code of Military Justice as a reservist. I wasn't active duty, but I had to be mindful that if I was going to get through the officer program and fly, I had to watch my P's and Q's. So when I would go to a Students for a Democratic Society meeting, I was more of, a, of an observer. And I even remember asking the question one time um, to the person leading the meeting. I said, you know, is this not considered by the U.S. government to be a subversive activity? And the guy was sort of myth, but he said, yeah, that's true. So I said, so then anybody looking to get employment by the government needs to be mindful of that fact, right? Yeah. So again, it goes back to that little lecture my mom gave me about truth. Um, I honestly, I really don't care. I mean, if there's an asteroid, this is going to destroy the earth in 10 years. And that's why things are so crazy right now. If I knew the truth, I could find a way to live happily. Other people couldn't. And um, so, yeah. And and looking back when, when they were firebombing Bank of America, um, I thought, well, that's horrible. That's absolutely horrible. And in a conventional sense, it was. But if we look today at where the financial institutions have gone and so on, um, the we baby boomers, uh, the younger generations accuse us viciously of allowing things to become the way they are. But um, all those people need to do is get a wife or a, a, a husband or whatever you call it these days, um, a, an automobile bill, uh, education loan and so on. And pretty soon you're locked into an eight to five um, work a day thing. And pretty soon the responsibilities and joys of, of familyhood take you away from thinking counterculture. And so when, and I do believe the protests of 1968 and later on were the fuel that made Richard M. Nixon decide that, yeah, we have to get out of Vietnam. I mean, they were fragging people overseas. Fragging means that uh, the enlisted people were shooting officers because they would, they would get word from on high um, high-ranking officers from distant officers are called REMFs, R-E-M-F, Rear Echelon Mother F Mother Fletcher. I don't like to use the, that word, but you know what I'm saying. And so the REMFs were saying, you know, take 25 guys out in the jungle and do this, that, and the other thing. And the the, the grunts with the the M16, the faulty M16s. Um, I mean, my my best friend of all time died because of a, a well-known to be faulty M16. They were sending people out in the jungle, knowing that they were going to get torn up by the far superior AK-47 and maybe even killed when the mission was just to come back with body counts for the press. So um, I believe that when the war ended, the Vietnam War ended, we baby boomers adopted a context of, well, it's over. And we became complacent and we became non-vigilant and so on. And I think that the supervision, the measuring um, and the holding accountable of government faded further into the background than it already was. And um, so, yeah, short answer. I was very aware of the counterculture and I participated to the to the edge of where I could. Uh, so I would still stay in the flight program with the Navy. Students for a Democratic Society. So you didn't. I mean, did you look when when they became the Weather Underground and they kind of started doing their actions? Because I have different, diff I guess, not different opinions of the Weather Underground, but I think I understand 
um, the bombing of toilets and warning people about it before you do it. But then I, I also talked to people that talked about, yeah, some of those people eventually started trying to make bombs with nails in it and do that. That's kind of where I draw the line. And I understand there was kind of a split off between different coasts of like, this is the weather underground here. And then this is a different section of it. I'm just curious, um, if you were part of the Students for Democratic Society, I mean, did you hear about what was going on with the weather underground? Did you support some of their actions or were you kind of against the whole? I get it because it's repression. I mean, how many people now are repressed and everyone's freaking out on social media about stuff it's just i think people are lost we've had our eye off the military industrial complex for a while maybe not certain individuals who are interested in the covid subject yeah. but for a lot of people like the church committee everything like that like there was no damage to the cia besides a reputation slap but there was like they didn't have to publish their budget it was a bit of a whitewash if you kind of look at it the amount of stuff they did exposed and then now if i bring up the church committee with anybody my generation or even other people that might be older they go what's that i go exactly good god i was like this is so important i'm surprised they don't teach it in school when i came across it i was like i gotta get this laminated on my wall because i read the multiple reports they had like 700 pages one and 400 pages another it's insane but you get to the ending of it you're like well what happened with it and they're like that was it they just kind of it's over yeah. you know it's, it's there if people want to read it i'm like yeah but what's the damage like are why do we what's the cia doing now because i couldn't tell you okay so respectfully you're weird thanks and i, I said <laughs> yeah yeah and i say that because you you said you're 25 yeah 25 so bobby was killed 50 years ago um for me born in 1947 for me to look back 50 years to the year eight Wow. Yeah. I'll let you know if I tell a friend about the JFK stuff, they go, oh, you're into that conspiracy stuff. I get eyes of anger where I okay. go, I'm not into conspiracies. <laughs> okay. So uh, anyway, so the fact that you're interested in things that happened 50 years and 55 years ago, um, actually JFK uh, assassination, 60 years this, this November, um, that's a beautiful thing. And that's why people like me and the researchers at the, at the various conferences and the authors are writing these books. Look, um, statistically, I shouldn't be around for more than another decade or so. Um, and why am I doing this? Why am I talking to you? Because I want people your age, maybe a little bit younger, to be infected with the curiosity um, and the, hey, what about this? You know, um, there's this idea about majority uh, winning, but in a court of law and with evidence, there is no such thing as majority. If you have one piece of clear evidence in a case of volumes, and that one piece of evidence clearly shows that things could not be the way they're supposed to be, it's not the weight of the heavy stuff. It's the weight of truth. And seeking truth is the most important thing. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes curiosity. And it takes a certain level of patriotism to the tenets of the original Constitution of the United States. Um, so. Um, going back to the Students for Democratic Society, um, I actually didn't join because, you know, I know um, I, I was once given the nickname Plays with Knives. And, and I said, what does that mean? And, and they said, well, I said, that sounds dangerous and I'm not a dangerous person. And they said, well, you're you're always on the edge. And then I realized that, yeah, that's where I, I've operated my life. I, I can find the razor's edge between danger and safe and, and be there and communicate with people on both sides of that without becoming um, perilously involved. And um, I think recently, uh, because I'm, fe I'm very, fe very fearful for children that you may or may not have at this point, and for your grandchildren and great-grandchildren, I believe that there are so many threats at play right now that um, I'm, I've sort of bumped off the edge into the onto the danger side. And that's not saying I'm involved in any specific subversive activities, but I'm not keeping my mouth shut. Um, and um, I know, and I, I know that people don't like different. People like new. So when I hear people talking about conspiracy theories, I don't argue the points. Um, I just say, well, you know, there's this book by David Talbot that you could read um, called uh, Devil's Chessboard. Or uh, there's this book by um, uh, James Douglas called um, JFK and the Unspeakable. Um, take a look at those. It's really a brilliant way. And I'm not patting myself on the back because I see it in others. It, there's a great deal of brilliance in throwing some breadcrumbs down and letting people discover 
what's very obvious to you. When they discover it by themselves, they can own it. They don't, they don't feel the resentment or the embarrassment of getting it from somebody else. So what you're doing here with me and with others is you're allowing people to experience other people's experience and they're seeing the breadcrumbs that they can follow. Um, and then the interested people will bank will will have a banquet. And it only takes five to seven percent of the population to shift society. I know I tend to globalize, but you asked for it, buddy. Are you are you optimistic or pessimistic? I found myself being more of a pessim a pessimism a pessimistic just because looking at the past and learning so much about operations that were going on. I mean, I knew a bit about MK Ultra, and I before Tucker Carlson blew the whistle, I was all into the Jack Ruby, and I have all the documents on the Joanne West. I mean, I think I've been over like fifty something thousand documents related to the JFK assassination from DPD archives and everything like that. So I'm looking at it, and I'm kind of like. You just need to read this. I mean, in the like in '64, they're saying they never knew Oswald, and then we have documents in the '70s talking about they all pulled their 201 files. Like, so they lied. So at that already, you just should have skepticism. You should question the official story because they are lying. Whatever that lying is, I don't know. We can everyone can have their own opinions on that. But I said that's the thing. They don't talk about the HSCA. They don't talk about anything that comes later, which I'll ask you about the HSA in a little bit. But yeah. It's so important when you look back at this, and I try and show people my age this type of stuff, and I'm not doing anything more than anybody could just read a document and see it for themselves, but just having like everyone's more focused on the future than they are the past. And like we have to look at like what has been going on and been unchecked for the longest time. We really haven't had anybody since, I guess, RFK Jr. now talking about the CIA in such ways or the FBI in such ways. I mean, we have other agencies too with other acronyms, and I could not tell you what they do. But through my studies and learning about the propaganda in film and how much the DOD influences film and learning all about media manipulation, just not apart. I mean, apart from Mockingbird, but so much that's going on, I go, it's the illusion of freedom. Is that what you want? Is that what people really want to be involved with is the illusion of freedom, the illusion of a free press, the illusion of this? Because it's all kind of myth making in a sense when you really boil down to how connected the agencies and military industrial complexes into everything. And it, that that brings a little bit of fear to me. It's why I have pessimism. I'm curious if you're an optimist or a pessimist. <laughs> Well, to, to answer your question, um, I'm very pessimistic, and um, I'll continue on that in a second because I'll lose the point if I don't mention it now. But you talked about the illusion of freedom. Have you seen the uh, quote by Frank Zappa, the founder of the Mothers of Invention? Mm -hmm. He was a brilliant guy, and I'll try to paraphrase it because I don't remember it exactly. But he said, the illusion of freedom will be allowed to continue so long as it's profitable. As soon as it becomes unprofitable, they will pull back, push the, the furniture off the stage, pull back the curtains and peel off the, the, the background decorations and show you the brick wall at the back of the stage. So um, the illusion of freedom. Um, we see it everywhere. I mean, they, we talk about freedom of speech and they have free speech zones. Well, they cre creating a disinformation board to try and eliminate misinformation. I was like, there's nobody fit in the world to decide who can say what or how something should be said. You have to allow it all up there. But that's the technology age where it's going to be more difficult to even – I think I got a JFK episode flagged um, for showing an actual government document where they released it in 22 and it was flagged for not security reasons, but it was flagged for misinformation. I was like, the damn government released it. <laughs> what, what, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. Well, again, um, yeah, um, I'm quite pessimistic. Um, the, the recent um, thing um, that we aren't supposed to talk about um, has me pretty much at odds with most of my family. Um, to them, I'm a tinfoil hat with legs. And um, and this goes way back. Um, there was a Thanksgiving 20 years ago where somebody said, um, oh, they probably think that Oswald didn't kill Kennedy. And everybody else in the room knew about my study of the JFK assassination. They all looked at me like, how are you going to respond to that? And it was so obvious. Everybody laughed. So um, I'm informed. And as I said, I only want truth. If, if I found out that Oswald, in fact, did or Sirhan really did kill Bobby Kennedy, I could, as Bobby Jr. says, Show me where I'm wrong and I'll change. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very pessimistic. Again, I mentioned earlier, your children and your potential grandchildren, I'm concerned about them. 
I've studied genealogy and I've stood in the in the graveyards where my ancestors were buried, and I have this feeling of eternity, and I know that eventually I will be, you know, dust to dust, um, and and I've I've accepted my mortality, and so the big fear that most people have, people your age, you know, you're looking at getting married, having a family, getting a fancy car, going on vacations and stuff. I've pretty much done a lot of that stuff. And so what do I what am I looking for? I'm looking for knowledge. I'm looking for understanding. I'm looking for being able to refine my ability to look somebody in the eye and know a lot about who they are and be able to strike up a conversation and and live well in the moment. Um, I've got so many books that I've read and so on that can help people, but people, a lot of people don't read. Thank goodness for Audible. You can listen to books on tape. So, you know, I, when I'm driving, I listen to books on tape. So yeah. Um I am pessimistic. And the thing that makes me the most pessimistic is how unwilling people are to look at what's going on. The recent revelations by people like Naomi Wolf and Dr. Peter McCulloch and so on, both of whom I've met and know, um, those revelations are being largely ignored. And things are coming out today, blatant lies and inconsistencies that were told to us and people seem to pay no attention to it. They're just more concerned about whether to have bologna or tuna for lunch. And um, at some point in time, and that's the thing about the American people, we've always reacted really well when our backs are pushed against the wall. We've had the geographic isolation and the production capacity so that if Hitler or Tojo or somebody makes a, makes a problem for us, we, you know, factory up, build bombers, use our resources to, to kill them. And, you know, the thing about the Ukraine that, that bothers me so much is most Americans don't realize that Russia lost over 20 million people in World War II. The United States lost about 800,000. And, um, you know, you know about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And we, I look at, uh, the, at Ukraine and Russia and what has been going on with the military. And I say, you know, I can see where Putin's really concerned. And, and it's not that there haven't been warnings, but... Most of the people, other than people like you and me, and there's hundreds and there's thousands of them, but not enough, enough yet to create that idea whose time has come. Um, people are not aware. And, and that is Bobby Kennedy Jr.'s job right now. His job is not to become president. If he had wanted to be president, he would have run for politics a long time ago. He wants to fly his falcon. He wants to fly pigeons. He wants to go fishing and let the fish go. Um, and he wants to... The Kennedys are well known for loving their families. Yeah, they made a lot of babies, um, but they love their children. And Bobby looks at, you know, the Kennedys and many, many people look at us as children uh, and not, uh, what do they call it, full-time equivalents. In hospitals, they don't even call people employees anymore. They look at them as full-time equivalents. So if you have three people that work eight hours, that's a 24-hour day. So you have three full-time equivalents at work at all time. We've become digitized. We've become binary into yes, no, black, white, good, bad, et cetera. So yeah, I'm very dystopic. And thank God for photography because photography is my way into places. I, I get to go take photographs at, at events where people pay $6,000 to be present. And I get to meet marvelous people. So I'm, a, I'm influenced by deep, broad thinking that doesn't go with the mainstream. And the one thing that Sarah Palin said that I really loved was only dead fish go with the flow. She said something about she knows about Alaska because she can see it from her backyard or something like that. And I thought that was just fucking hilarious. Yeah. So um, I got I to gotta ask you about the HSCA when that was going on. Did you follow the HSC, HSCA's investigation? What are your thoughts on them? I had Blakey on the show. And um, I just thought it was interesting. I'd never heard him say before that I think after all these years, we know that the CIA definitely withheld things from us that could have been crucial to our investigation, but also that we know that Oswald wasn't just a lonely loser type, which I think was pretty interesting to hear him actually say that to me. He did not give me the answer about the venereal disease. I had to ask about that because, damn it, I need that answer to know why he got a venereal disease. And it says in the line of duty um, in Oswald's medical records. But when you were looking, I mean, if you looked at the HSCA investigation, do you think that they did? I mean, that's something we should be teaching, not just the Warren Commission version of things. We should at least have the HSCA investigation at least get a mention. I mean, they uncovered a lot and there's a lot of suspicious stuff that was going on there. 
I do think it was a whitewash, but I just think they proved a couple things different from the official narrative. And on that basis, you kind of got to go with the conspiracy aspect of things. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, <clears throat> my research and devotion to the assassination studies has gone very deep and it's become pretty manic at times. And then I have to break away. You know, I have to go fishing or turn my interest someplace else because it will eat you up. And um, so when the HCSA was going on, House Select Committee on Assassinations, um, I was aware of it. Um, but, and again, we didn't have the internet then. So, I mean, you couldn't just dial up, you know, on YouTube, you couldn't go to, you know, uh, AOL or any place else and get the information. You had to wait and see what the newspapers put out. And um, depending upon your location in the United States, being in Silicon Valley of California, there was the Palo Alto Times, San Francisco Chronicle, um, pretty liberal area. So there was a, a little bit of uh, suspicion and stuff going on. So I wasn't acutely aware. But again, um, we put too much, we give too much respect to data and information as opposed to our senses, our, our, our vibrational cognizance. Um, and when you want, and context is a very good word to know. When you, when you look at a person and you understand what their context is, you almost can tell in advance what's gonna come out of their mouth. Um, so the context of society tells you what's going on. And when the HCSA was going on, it was very clear from the Warren Commission and so on that the CIA and the FBI were, um, you know, the fair-haired ch children of the information sources. So I took everything with a grain of salt. Um, and at that time, I was working with a brilliant man named Edmund C. Berkeley, and he was—he's been credited with being the first person to conceive of a personal computer. And um, he had a magazine called uh, Computers and Automation, which he changed to People in the Pursuit of Truth. And he, he worked with Richard Sprague, and he produces some brilliant photographic issues of People in the Pursuit of Truth. I wrote a couple of articles for it. And um, uh, Edmund C. Berkeley also was working on a project called EVE, which was speech recognition of computers. And he would fly from Boston to California, and I got an apartment that he could go live in very near me, near the San Francisco airport. So I got to witness him and become aware of the assassination study and so on. So um, I was aware of what was going on. Um, one of my well-researched family lines is the Sprague family, and there were two Sprague's uh, involved in the JFK assassination research. I never really got to find out much about them and so on. So um, there was an awareness, but when you see a fire, you don't have to go stick your finger in the coals to make sure it's hot. You know. So when you see this investigation going on and when you see the flibberty-gibberty stuff that goes on and the controversies, the interpersonal arguments and stuff, you can see the politics that goes on. If you haven't, if you haven't talked to um, Robert Tannenbaum um, I highly suggest that you uh, get in touch with him because he was on the House Select Committee of Assassinations. We can talk later about him, but um, he has some very strong words to say, and he hasn't really written a book about it yet, although he's a very uh, prolific author. I think he has 34 books out. Um, anyway, so, um, yeah, I was aware of it. And then I was getting to the point where, you know, I had a, a steady girlfriend. I was restoring an old automobile. Kids were just about to come along at a mortgage, and pretty soon those entertaining things that I was paying attention to um, sort of started depreciating in their value of precedence in my life. When I asked Blakey about the guy that broke into their safe and looked through autopsy photos without any gloves, it was like, I was just a low level janitor guy. I was like, yeah, but you needed both codes from the HSCA side and the CIA side to get into that safe. How did that happen? He goes, I don't think we ever gotten an answer to that which i go all right like it's just there's a lot of things that are suspicious and obviously i had to he was he's older so it was you know 
hate to ask him all the hard questions, but I, I've, I was very curious and I'm looking through documentation. You see the guy's signature a number of times. You kind of just go, okay, you got to tell me about this and tell me that. Also, I'm so involved into it. And for a lot of people, this is like in the past for them. But um, I had a question about photography, actually, when it comes to the autopsy, or not autopsy, when it comes to Oswald's backyard photographs, have you looked at that from a photographer aspect? And can you tell me if it's possible to edit those or be able to crop and do what they, everyone says where the photos were manipulated? Did we have the technology back then? Might be a dumb question to ask, but I just got to know from a photography standpoint, if you happen to examine that one. Okay. So one of the people that I hated the most and now love very much was my drill instructor at NAS Pensacola, Naval Air Station Pensacola. And, and he said, after having berated us millions of times, as drill instructors are supposed to do, he said, look, the only bad question is the one that you're too chicken shit to ask. So it's, it's not a bad question. Um, and um, of course, yes, those pictures were altered. When Oswald saw them, he said, yeah, that's my head, but that's not my body. I can show you how to do that. But, you know, Jack Ruby never gave him the chance. Um, they did have the technology and that's how this Zapruder film was manipulated. And it's very interesting um, what a person's stake in the assassination community is, how it affects their, I'll call it sacred cow uh, evidence. Um, people that have published things that say that the Zapruder film is 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 valid, um, they put blinders on when evidence comes up to show that it's not. But um, so going back to the backyard photographs. Yeah. And I actually did. Um, I was working with some people in Northern California um, and they actually stood out when the sun was at a certain place with a rifle and showed the shadow under the nose coming straight down. When the sun was at a different place, showed the shadow going to the side and uh, and so on. So, yeah, those backyard photos were were duped up. And um, Roscoe White, it was Roscoe White's body. How do we know? Because he had a square chin and he had a, a he had broken his wrist. You could see the broken wrist. The, the length of the rifle is not right. The sling is different. Oswald had a wristwatch on, which I don't think he wore. There was all kinds of evidence in there. And of course, people with, um, I, I created a term which I call suicidal confirmation bias. And that is people, Shelley Berman once did a comedy album about somebody sitting on an airplane. And he said, look, if you were on an airplane and you looked out the window and you saw two engines burning, you would just sit there in your seat and keep quiet because you would rather die than make an ass out of yourself. And when it comes to confirmation bias, um, people would rather be shot down in flames than take a look at something that conflicts with what they believe to be true or what what makes money for them or what gives them uh, ego boost, you know, attention, uh, fame, et cetera. So the Spruta film very clearly was altered in, in many places. Uh, if you look carefully at the shadows and stuff, um, uh, Fetzer, Professor Fetzer from, from Oregon, uh, wrote a, a really brilliant book called The, the Great Zapruder Film Hoax. It's right here, 14 inches away from my left hand. Um, lots and lots. But see, the thing is, <clears throat> Randy Benson, a great filmmaker. Yeah, he's who been did on the show multiple times. Okay, so you're friends um, with David Denton too, who's been on the show multiple um, times. So okay, great, great. Both wonderful people and, and excellent researchers. Um, the, one of the things that Randy has said numerous times, and, and uh, I just loved his verbiage, he, he says, We have to stop looking for shoe sizes in Dealey Plaza and look at what the results are. What was the importance of Dealey Plaza? Because, and it's you just called... did John Judge's uh, speech at the 60 or the 59th, the last one that just passed, the recent anniversary they just had there. Yep. Yeah. And um, yeah, he sure did. And uh, unfortunately, there was some a glitch with the sound and um, he wasn't able to actually present that whole thing. Um, anyway, going back to uh, photo manipulation and so on. Look, I might be a fourth generation researcher, but I'm trying to catch up with you guys. I could tell you that much. Now, I, I've seen plenty of the films. I haven't really read a whole lot of the books because it's hard for me to um, sit. I have ADHD. It's hard for me to sit through some books as well, too. But I like listening to them. And um, the JFK, the uh, the Searchers, the Randy Benson uh, film that he made, and then Max Good's film as well, too. Um Jeff, uh, Jim Diagino's film as well, too, was really one that really got me first started into talking to people about the Kennedy assassination. But I find that if you show people 
this type of stuff and show them why they should care and like what's going on and the complete misjustice that goes on, they will care. But it's about are people going to want to sort and go through something like this, like a deep dive? I mean, a lot of people like me, like you, like other people out there who are researchers, it's a they're, they're, that's not a really good option for a lot of the general public. I mean, it is that nine to five lifestyle type thing of like, people just go, I already have a job. I don't want to have to dive into this subject. I didn't know I was going to get hooked until I started getting hooked to, after looking into it for, I think the first few weeks, I started realizing that there's a lot more here and it was a complete sense of there's something seriously wrong going on and we need to talk about it. I mean, for you, I mean, would you trade it all back in to all the years that you spent researching into it or I mean, you get a lot of criticism. I mean, you probably get support as well, too. But JFK research isn't necessarily an easy topic to try and convene to the general public. Hindsight is such an absurd thing because, I mean, if I could go back to 1968, um, I would do a heck of a lot more dating, take a lot more pictures, study a lot harder. There wouldn't be enough time to do all the things I would do differently. And about this, because of that wonderful little lecture my mom gave me about truth, I probably would have been more vocal and more on the danger side. And now that Robert McNamara wrote his book, in retrospect, um, I actually negotiated my way out of the military. I was a commissioned officer going to flight school, and I literally negotiated my way out with an honorable discharge. And they thought enough about the way that I handled myself that they actually made me 4A um, for the draft, which meant that I had prior uh, military service. So um, if to do to look at it back again, it's very difficult to know what could have been done then to prevent what's happening now from occurring. Um, but I would have been I would have been even more active. Um, or um, I would have bought the best fly fishing rods on the planet and gone gone to you know, Patagonia in, in uh, Argentina or something, Lake Titicaca, and spent the rest of my life fishing or being a fishing guide and just pretend nothing exists. Um, uh, Peter, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show, man. Seriously, um, giving me the time for this. It's it's an important subject to me, and I'm trying to get interested in the RFK assassination. Uh, I know I'll get hooked into that one as well, too. But is there a place where people can find any of your links, if you have any social media links you'd like to promote, any book links, anything like that, website? Well, that's that's where my uh, escapism is involved. Um, I'm busy taking photographs and editing photographs and stuff because then that becomes my world and all this stuff goes away. So that's that's my escape. Um, I've not yet produced a website. If I if I had a manager, somebody that really knew photography and and media, um, I probably would have all of that stuff. I have monstrous numbers of, of photography, really great photographs. And I say that from what other people tell me, I'm very self-effacing, but I've had people tell me that looking at my photography is like going to church. Um, and I was, I've been hired to do private engagements and stuff like that. So um, I don't have that yet. Um, but I, I meant to tell you, and I will tell you now, um, I will be on a panel in November at uh, a JFK assassination conference. They call it a JFK assassination conference, but it's really the big four, JFK, RFK, MLK, and Malcolm X. Yeah. So there is a conference in Dallas in November, the week before the 22nd, the weekend before the 22nd. Um, I'll be on a panel there, and um, it, it would be a good thing. You know Benson and Denton, they're going to be there. I'll be there. But that's a very good place to rub shoulders with some of the, the great thinkers, the great producers of documentation in this. Um, I would say that um, th there's a book which has scared the crap out of me. And I think it's probably one of the most important reads a person could look at today. Um, and I, I, I was a Democrat in 1968, and I still have that registration. But the Democratic Party is not my party anymore. But there's a book by Glenn Beck called The Great Reset. Yeah. And uh, that book, I think, is essential reading for everyone in this country. And Beck has been known to be a conservative. People look at him as a Republican, one of those bad guys to some people and heroes to others. But he says in his book over and over and over again, don't trust me. Don't listen to a word I say. Go to the documentation in the back. Go to, always go to first source information. And what is going on with The Great Reset? 
with the World Economic Forum, um, with the number of people that have been to their young leaders training. Um, we are way behind the curve. They have big plans and lots of financing and our lives are gonna be changed dramatically unless people your age and my age and younger and older become aware and start speaking up because we, we Americans tend to be reactive. Um, we don't tend to generate and, and create a lot. Industry, you know, if it's for profit, we can. But anyway, uh, finding out about the Great Reset would be a, a very vital thing. And then, of course, um, um, Douglas. Um, the unspeakable? Douglas, Douglas Horn, H-O-R-N-E, uh. has done some brilliant research. And he recently wrote a book called JFK's War, which really goes deep into the relationship of JFK and the the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So um, finding out about the, the military influence and now the economic influence, which also includes pharmaceutical and chemical and stuff, would be very good. And I would also say um, I, I'm very high on Robert F. Kennedy Jr., but I don't tell people to vote for him. I just say pay attention to what he has to say. Go to the website, see what he has to say. Look at his interviews and listen. And then you decide what who you want to vote for. Um, it's a dangerous world, and um, you know we're talking about the assassination of John and Robert Kennedy Sr. Um, I've talked to Bobby several times, and he is fully at peace with God and with eternity and so on. He says, my life is in God's hands. And he recently said, I think it was um, on the recent interview, um, he was asked, are you afraid about that? And he said, uh, or are you aware of that? And he says, look, I'm not stupid. I have to do things differently than I want to, um, but I'm not stupid. Am I afraid? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So to say that he's fearless, um, you have to have, pardon me, to say that he's courageous, you have to have fear to be courageous. And he is living his life in the moment such that he doesn't take the time to be afraid. He just does what he thinks is next. And I think that's what we need to do. We can't let our emotions um, overrun us. Now, you bit off a lot when you took me on this with you, um, and I hope I've uh, given you what you want, um, and I'd love to come back. Oh, of course, man. You're always welcome back, and we'll have to do one on the other subject we can't talk about on YouTube. We'll do a Spotify exclusive on that one. But no, Peter, it's been a pleasure talking with you, man. Um, and thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast, and stay tuned for our next